one of the trends in the 90s was that fragrances started to take on a kind of like a food or culinary kind of feeling. And so I, to me, Aqua Di Gio has this kind of citrusy um, note to it that is very like kind of uh, the, sort of like the hallmark of that fragrance. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. John DeBerry is a bartender extraordinaire, cookbook author, spokesman for the bar and restaurant world, and one of my favorite guests pretty much all time. He's back to talk about his really great new book, Saved by the Bellini and other 90s-inspired cocktails. On this episode, we talk about dead stock sodas, summer drinking, and dive into what he loves so much about the 1990s. A great decade indeed. I really enjoyed catching up with John, and I hope you dig this episode. John DeBerry, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me it's again. So I want to have you in maybe twice a year. I'm I, I get twice a month. Twice a month, we could even go. Yeah, we'll go like a full like series. But you know, <laughs> Save by the Bellini is here. We've teased it out last uh, time, but now it's here, and I'm gonna link to the show notes. You should buy it simply because to me, it is one of my favorite drinks books ever. Wow, I think it is absolutely uh, essential in that. The drinks look great. I don't drink alcohol, so I don't probably won't make a lot of them. But honestly, just the head notes and the research that you've done and the fun and the the voice, it's just such a great read. Thank you. Yeah, that was sort of my that was my goal with my first book is I wanted it to be a good read above all else. But I think you still I was just saying this, I think like you still need to kind of care a little bit about drinks in order to for a drink what you want to kind of land. But with Say by the Bellini, it's kind of like you could just ignore the recipes and still have a great time just looking at the illustrations and then mm-hmm. just reading the head notes. Um, yeah, it's a fully illustrated book. I mean, that's you, you break a lot of rules in the best way. I think you, you <laughs> your head notes are, are chunky. Really long. <laughs> yeah, they're long, but they're full of uh, ethnography and full of journalism interviews. You, you've done all the work, and then you have illustrations with all them, which are great. Yeah, shout out to Clara Kirkpatrick, who is yeah. my illustrator, who crushed it. It Claire did great. So are you going back and forth on sketches a lot, just trying to get the right vibe? You know what? I actually just interviewed her for I doing a little mini series for my own uh for about the book for uh my own podcast mini series. And uh we were just talking yesterday. The process was so easy. It was it was unreal. Like wow. we found we found each other and the style, her style was very much this sort of nineties pop art, Doug. Beavis and Butthead, yep. sort of like cartoony, but very kind of like flat, but a little saturated colors. And it just really worked. And we were like, yes. And then I, I think I gave her like a, I, I took pretty decent reference photos of every drink when I, as I was making them. And then I sent her that plus maybe a visual reference yeah. to like the music video I was talking about or the whatever. And I think I probably had like maybe five notes total for all. Of oh, that's great. I was great. just like, oh, let's move this. Or like, this isn't supposed to be this garnish actually. And then, uh, yeah, so it was actually like amazing. Like for just, we just got each other on it. Like so the references include, may include Diet Coke and, and Clueless, uh, In Living Color, Homie Don't Play That. Um, <laughs> you've got 90210. You've got Saved by the Bell, obviously. In bloom. I mean, we're going to talk about the 90s in this conversation. So if you don't care about the 90s, I'm sorry, you might want to stop listening. Content warning. Content uh, warning. Yeah, 90s is happening. (laughs) But before we get to the actual concept, I want to ask you this big question. What will be the drink of the summer of 2023? There's always a drink you're at the center of bartending 
what is the drink going to be? I don't know. I always feel like I have such a a cynical view about trends because they're so... Mm. um, What's the name of the snake that eats itself, the Ouroboros or Mm -hmm. whatever it's called? It's very much like... The snake that eats its tail. Yeah, the the PR the PR pitch then dictates the, the yeah the pieces, and then the pieces dictate what people are asking for. Particularly in drinks, which is you know not covered that rigorously outside of punch and maybe a few other spots. Like there's a lot of PR regurgitation. Right. You you can definitely read an article every once in a while, and you're like, oh, this is just a re a, a rehash, <laughs> right. you know, press release. Right. Uh, but so you're dodging the question, though. I, feel I like am dodging the question because I don't have a good answer. There's got to be something. <laughs> it's like, who has the biggest marketing budget right now? We had Dirty Shirley's. <laughs> we had the uh, Espresso Martini. We had the Spritz. These are previous summers. We had all those yeah. drinks. Were though, but were those were those were those heralded before? They were. Was it? Was anyone saying, "Oh, this Dirty, Dirty Shirley is going to be the drink of the summer," or was it like kind of like in retrospect where we were like, "Oh, we saw Timothy Chalamet drinking a Espresso Martini," so now. It's well, the, the question is impossible to answer. It's impossible we, to answer. Established yes. this because yes, that's when why I'm refer- dancing around. When you're at Labor Day, you're like, <laughs> let's talk about summer, and there was a drink that everyone had. It, New York man will likely write something. I'm okay. Prediction. Prediction. Um, not the blood and sand. Well, maybe my, maybe the blood and sand from the book because I think I actually cracked the code. But that's for another <laughs> yeah. segment of this Seg- podcast. Yeah. <sighs> you know, it's it's tough because. Um, you know, I, I think I can almost. It's it's almost easier to say what it's not going to be. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> uh, the corpse survivor will not be the probably <laughs> not. You know, I think people are also kind of burnt out on hard seltzer. Yeah. Um, the kind of novelty of like a hard seltzer, I think, was overriding the lack of deliciousness on part of most of them. And so yeah. now that they're not. Now that they're just sort of everywhere, I think that they're not going to be like super hot. But if you don't care and you just want to drink alcohol and water, then that's I'm not I'm not going to tell you no. No, like, everyone. Not, so it's fine uh, for me. You know, I think that what we're, what the what the world is craving right now, and I personally am craving, and I probably you as well, as someone who um, enjoys a non-alcoholic drink every once in a while, is that I think that we're so ready for like a moment where like the non-alcoholic drink canon becomes crystallized. Yeah, and it's like the way that we have a daiquiri and the way that we have an old-fashioned and a gin and tonic and a highball. I th- I feel like we're so ready for those categories to start to emerge. Um, in non-alcoholic drinks and not just like, oh, we need to replace the rum with a non-alcoholic rum because that's basically just yeah. the same drink. It's really like, what are these drinks that are kind of foundation that w- upon which alcohol has no foundation uh, that we can sort of like say, oh, I want to go in and get like a like a souped up lemonade or like what's yeah. like the thing, you know? Where so it's, it's like, it's like taking this like NA established drink, but making it really creative for the cocktail world. Yeah. And making it into like a, you know, kind of reifying these categories mm-hmm. of like, oh, I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes X, Y, and Z drink the way you would go into a bar and yeah. say, Hey, I'm, I love, I love a good margarita. What do you have? I love that. You know, being able to kind of have some like objective goalposts and some boundaries to this. It's the summer of N.A. Yeah, let's let's, let's say that. <laughs> I love it. I just had a really great N.A. drink at Mother Wolf in L.A., which was like a fake Negroni, but it was very different from like the phony Negronis I've had. I had an awesome vinegar cocktail that Julie Reiner made me last night. It was so Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, okay, so Tiffany Thiessen, formerly Tif- Tiffany Amber Thiessen, uh, wrote the foreword to your book. And many remember her from, of course, Saved by the Bell. But... 
I have to say that Valerie Malone, um, her character on 90210, is a real highlight of her, of her canon. I'd like to ask you about Beverly Hills 90210. What does this show mean to you? You know, I um, I watched 90210. I think I was like a little bit too young. Yeah, same. You know, I was like kind of didn't get it. These people looked seemed like adults to me, even though they were like literal children. Yeah. Um, but I did watch it. I didn't know who was who. I actually then watched it enough that I like – Got the spinoff of you know Melrose Place. I started watching for some reason, and it wasn't, oh, we'll get to Melrose it wasn't Place, a problem right. with my parents either, uh, f- even though they were very aware of what I was doing <laughs> most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, I think nine hundred two one zero presented this for me was sort of this like breezy high school fantasy that I knew I, that I probably was never going to get living mm-hmm. in the, the Northeast. Um, but I kind of grew up in a, sim- a town very similar to Beverly Hills, so uh, it didn't feel completely alien, but. To see people with cars and like space, and you know, everyone was attractive and everything was easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I think that the show, the aesthetic of the show, and the style of the acting and the kind of the storylines represented a very, like, very quintessential 90s kind of um, ambivalence towards uh, trying too hard, yeah, you know, kind of a breeziness, but a very, very disciplined breeziness where it was like a super intentional. Yeah. I mean, life was easy until. Dylan cheated on Donna with Kelly while she was in Paris. Oh, see, I don't. It's that, that level of 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 granularity. I don't. Yeah, have it's with crazy. <laughs> Were there any drinks in Nine Hundred Two that you can remember? Were there any drink scenes? I don't know. Did they ever have an underage drinking very special episode? I'm sure they must. Have. I don't know because it was a time when um, I think drinking on television was pretty restricted. And yeah, they were very careful about that. So I don't. I, I'm pretty sure they had a they had a drinking episode of of uh, Save at the Bell. Oh, really? <laughs> I feel like they must. I feel like I feel like I can remember one where like Zach is drunk and it's like this huge problem. <laughs> he had like one beer. He had like yeah. one beer and they're like sending him to rehab. Yeah, I love that. That's classic '90s. Speaking of the '90s, you write that the '90s was the last great decade. Why? Well, I wrote that it's the last great decade because it was the last. Not necessarily the last great time period in our life, but because like the kind of the the decade model of quantifying time, I feel like fell apart after the nineties mm-hmm. and like this kind of post historical like everything from two thousand and one to now feels like it was five years ago, and then the nineties feel like it was now, and then the seventies still feels like it was thirty years ago. I don't know. That's just my own you know bias from when I was born, but um, I think that the nineties represented this like this really pivotal um, time when it, it like there was like this co- almost like a corner in the development of our of our society where it was like everything in the 20th century was leading up towards the advent of the internet and like interconnectivity of everybody and like kind of this idea that you're always kind of in public mm-hmm. and that your life is sort of belongs to like other people uh, and this kind of untangling of privacy <laughs> so to speak and then so the 90s the you know the Going into the 90s was like very much the 20th century and then the, the leaving the 90s was very much like the 21st century. Yeah. And so you got – you went from having like maybe like one person had like the dial-up. The modem sound. Arp, ARPANET, you know, yeah, precursor prodigy. to the internet. Prodigy or before yeah. that, you know, um, Dot Matrix kind of like MS-DOS. Yeah. Thing. CD-ROM. Yeah, in like 1991 to like 1999 and 2000 where there was like DVD players and yeah. there was like phones and you could kind of get the internet on your phone. It was very fancy and kind of sucked. But like mm-hmm. you could – it was like the the, the 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 contours of the way that we live now were sort of 
developed. Yeah, we were off to the races once the phones enter the picture and social media, obviously. Yeah. Um, to the drinks, though, great, great answer. By the way, I think you very cool that you decided <laughs> to base a drinks book around this decade, which is really genius. Um, I love that you put Diet Coke in the clueless drink. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me ask you, where else are juices and sodas kind of intermingling with drinks in your book, like juices and sodas of the era? Because I love that you're just calling out Diet Coke. <laughs> well, I call it Diet Coke because it was, I actually did a, a beverage viewing of uh, Clueless <laughs> to see what people were drinking because yeah. I really wanted to have a Clueless cocktail, but I wasn't really sure how to do it. Um, and I, I, I guess, is is Diet Coke, is it 90s? Is it? Well, I, I the, feel like it's a the, little 90s. The Soda Wars were in the yeah. 80s. I think right. that was like an 80s thing. But then I think the 90s crystallized, huh, crystallized, pun intended, uh, a real movement towards a mass consumption of these products, especially yeah. Coke. And also like sugar-free and yeah, yeah exactly. sweeteners and all Snuck that. Wells generation ship. Yeah, and then, of exactly. course, Crystal Pepsi, right. um, which I was referring to. Um, interesting. Yeah. So I, um, you know, it, 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 I, I would have... I was thinking a lot about doing drinks like a can, a clearly Canadian yeah. or uh, a crystal, speaking of crystal, crystal clear Pepsi. I wanted to try and see if I could do a recreation of that. Uh, and it was a, a, a really just unappetizing failure Yeah, uh, to try and do that myself. Same with, with that Van Halen song, man. I like that like, song. I'm sorry. Right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It reminds yeah. me of like being in second grade and like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of corny, but like, yeah, sorry, this is not a music <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that there is a certain juicy vibe to the 90s in a way. Like there is sort of this like, if you think about all like the um, kind of commercials of the time, everything is very saturated and yeah. very like, you know, nine-year-old kids next to cartoon characters, you know, eating, you know, fruit roll-ups. So that's mm-hmm. just sort of what comes to mind when you think about, like, the kind of food and beverage. Saturation is an interesting term. I totally agree. Like, yeah. The color palettes were saturated. Speaking of sodas, did you ever come across a Josta? I, that name rings a bell, but um, I don't know if I, that was like an energy drink, right? Yeah, it was released in 1995. It was considered America's first energy drink, and it features the guarana berry, which I think is pretty boss. Like, I feel like the guarana berry as a flavor is delicious. I've yet to, f- I looked on eBay for dead stock Josta, and I couldn't find it. That's the thing is that a lot of times you're trying to bring these things back, and it's like, you can find dead stock, like maybe some snacks, yeah. but like the beverage, <laughs> rough. You can find some Crystal Pepsi. I- I've definitely seen it. But does it look like it? No, it like does not it look crystal. Brown. It looks yeah. brown. It something's <laughs> it's, happened to it. It's, it's still there. It's just not <laughs> what it was. It's really bad. But uh, but Josta was amazing, and I think it was an era of I've definitely like like I feel like RTD got big in the nineties. I mean, I was a surge girl. That was my yeah. Drink. That was my energy drink. That's come up the original surge. Now the reboot of surge, I'm not quite as big a fan of. Yeah. No, the original surge. It was it was like. Sort of like a psychedelic citrus flavor for me. Like it does not, it was not like lemon or lime or orange. It was just some kaleidoscopic monstrosity that I thought was so delicious. So good. I love Surge. Um, Did you ever go to Chi-Chi's? I have no idea what Chi-Chi's is. Okay. I had this in the notes because I thought there was a reference to the book, but maybe this is like notes to myself. It was this 1990s (laughs) restaurant chain. Um, The Celebration of Food is the tagline. Chi-Chi's is, to me, like, the <laughs> iconic 90s restaurant because it's doing Tex-Mex in, like, places like Matawan, Michigan. Oh, and, yeah. Like, it, and it literally looks like a, like, 
cantina. Like it has like all that stucco going on. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if Chi Chi's made it to to Connecticut when I grew up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's play homage to your in living color uh, drink. I love that show. And you have a honey don't play that cocktail. What is this exactly? Uh, so you know, there's one of the most iconic characters from uh, um, In Living Color was Homie the Clown. And for those of for those of us who did not watch <laughs> In Living Color, oh, such a good, uh, it's a great around. great sketch comedy show. It was on. I think it was like what was it Tuesday night at eight p.m. on Channel Five, yeah. Fox. You know, yeah. it's like it was only on for like a couple of years. It wasn't really yeah. The that. Wayne's Brothers came out of it. That was like really yeah. There. So many and careers. J- and like Jim Carrey, David Allen Greer, Jim Carrey, um, J Lo was yep. the Perez was the choreographer for the Fly Girls. Like it was just like insane. Um, and Homie the Clown was sort of this like he I think he was someone who was sort of doing court ordered community service and having to give like inspirational <laughs> uh, speeches and and sort of like to kids, like Q&As, like he would go into schools, like a library, the, you know, that each sketch was kind of based on him, like, being in some... Yeah, children's... Like, some, yeah. yeah, some, some like, very inappropriate matching of him <laughs> and children, because he was just so... He was so over it and so mean and just so, like, completely just exasperated with everything that it was, like, a very demoralizing pep talk, basically. Like, it's supposed to be, like, oh, kid, like, here's this, like, clown who's gonna teach you, like, how to live your life, and it's just completely just, like nihilistic like fuck everything kind of kind of mentality and so i wanted to have you know in living color represented in the book in some way uh because it was something i watched a lot and i found to be very like iconically 90s and yeah rather you know unfortunately ahead of its time oh so far ahead of its time (laughs) uh two three snaps in a circle motion (laughs) ahead of its time and so um and so then you know i was thinking like what's a good like homie don't play, you know, homie, don't play that. It's like the most iconic, you know, set of words from that show. Definitely. And so, you know, homie, switch one word to honey. So it's a good honey drink. And then I wanted it to be like mildly tropical Caribbean, kind of playful and kind of clowny, you know, have yeah. a little bit over overstated and kind of like mm-hmm. a little bit uh, more elaborate than it needed to be. So I kind of went in a little bit of like a tiki cool, Caribbean tropical thing. And I had done um, a date infused uh, Gosling's rum for my Melrose Place cocktail. And so I wanted to really be conscientious to the reader in this book about reusing sub recipes and not having to have... Yeah, if you're making a syrup or you're making an infused rum, you shouldn't just like waste it. Yeah. Yeah. So I really tried to keep the palate sort of limited. Uh, and so I wanted to re- recycle as much as much ingredients as I could. And so there's this date infused... Um, Goslings, and then there's the sweetener is um, this kind of fancy honey that I call turbo honey. I tried mm. to come up with like '90s branded drinks or '90s branded names for these syrups, and <laughs> right. I was like, "Oh, here's my honey with deluxe in the name." Or <laughs> exactly. Turbo. Yeah. So, uh, so rather than using straight water to dilute the honey, which makes it easier to mix into a cocktail, I used like a cold brew chamomile tea. Yeah. Uh, to nice. give it like a little bit of depth. And so it's that, plus some um, other sort of more like tropical ingredients. And so you have this sort of like silly, kind of complicated tiki drink, Caribbean, you know, kind of tropical drink um, that maybe doesn't have, doesn't taste like the way the show looked. You know, it's kind of hard to do unless you have synesthesia. No, but it's an homage to all the the clown clowniness. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it just has a similar vibe, and the honey the honey pun is really the anchor. Of, of course. Yeah. You, you, you sometimes these are just like superficial puns. Yeah. Exactly. It's a really cool drink. So speaking of Melrose Place, we talked about how conceptual artist Melchin's, uh, you know, reproductive health positive art was featured in the show, and is like very productive. Pro- 
it was very like progressive and and honestly they kind of snuck it in the shows like a little bit of a of a of a wink and very cool that you actually write about this and you've you've acknowledged some of the culture of the time uh, for some of this pop culture, the culture behind the pop culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually hoping, uh, like I said, I'm doing a, a podcast of my own for to, to, to about about the book, and I'm hoping to get and, and Mel and I are actually emailing today about when he's going to come on. Oh, so I'm that's... really curious to talk to him. I hope I don't have to like retroactively fact check myself when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> when I talk to him and find out some of the things I, I did do my research was was incorrect, but it's just so fascinating to me. As also a very, it's a very '90s moment where it sort of is this proto internet, you know, Easter egg explainer mm-hmm. video on YouTube kind of like phenomenon. But like we didn't have the kind of meta uh, structures around no. these media pieces of media to be able to really like almost like even notice. Yeah. So what did we notice as viewers or maybe not notice what was happening? What what was the, I mean, actual... I think, I think, I think what it ended up being, it was a very kind of like, um, it was sort of like a, it was insidery, you know, yeah. it was like, if you knew Mel or if you knew the museum or if you were involved. So somehow, yeah. What is the backstory of the actual piece that appeared on the show? Well, basically it's a, it's sort of like, it's like a conceptual art project that took a place over the course of the, sh- the show's like life and, and not for the whole yeah. the whole run but it was for a few seasons towards the end and they sort of snuck in all these sort of subtle subtle messages about like uh there's like a, a quilt with like a used condoms like embroidered on it or like a print you know kind of on it or and then there's a, someone's using a blanket that has or a towel that has the, the chemical structure for RU486 which is the morning after pill kind of embroidered on it and then there's like there's a, a bar that they go to a bunch of times and they have in the background like these props that are to basically look like normal props but like if you look closely there's like uh like the history of alcohol sort of like displayed in the back bar mm. and then like there's a there's a piece about like racism and slavery that's wow. just, it isn't, isn't super like there isn't like a i mean this the statement probably is very clear if you're the people involved but i think it is on the show it's just sort of like added this interesting kind of visual thing where because was, amanda's agency yes is representing the fictitious artist no, the, the, so Amanda's It's so agency, meta that we're like, it's hard to explain. But it like wraps around itself a few times. The, 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 the museum that sponsored the project in real life that put the, that, you know, basically was responsible for the, these items showing up on the set ended up being a client of Amanda, AKA Heather Lockley's yeah, characters. Yeah, the character, yeah. Uh, ad agency. And then they like basically the, so it's like a plot line in the show that Amanda's like, doing like events and kind of promoting this museum that's a real museum in LA. Um, but that but there's no reference to like the actual props being part of it. So it's like kind of weird. It's meta <laughs> in like a few ways. Yeah. And at the time, I don't think that there was a ton of, you know, there was a ton of recognition of it happening in real time. You know, now you can see there's like a, there's, they've exhibited all the works, they've written about it, but like at the, you know, think about how that would happen now where like there'd be 20 YouTube videos. Yeah of people, you know, freeze framing and circling and saying this is that. And then there'd yeah. be all this like speculation on Reddit. It'd be know. a subtweet. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just really fascinating to see that like, that's where we were headed, but we didn't quite have the tools to yeah. fully engage with it, which is why the, the decade is so fascinating. It's such a, and it's such an important, especially late nineties when, when internet was really crashing into our, our lives. <laughs> John, for you, what was your first memory of the internet? 
I remember we got like an Apple II GS or something when I was, I don't know, maybe like nine or ten. And I think that we were the first internet service we got was, I think it was CompuServe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like you would, or and then I think we went to AOL or maybe it was back and forth, but it was like this very fraught process of like, you know, the phone line had to be clear and you had, yeah. <laughs> and you had to go on. And then there was this whole, like you would get, you would, that this, the, the sound of the modem going and you getting sort of thrown into this like landing page. It wasn't even a page. It was like. It's like a terminal. Yeah. In it, some respects. It, it, was, it, was it a, had like, like little icons of like chat room yeah. or like news and they all kind of like sucked. Like there yeah. was nothing that interesting on it because yeah. it was like 20 people using it at yeah. the time. Um, and so, you know, I would, I was like, would, would like download games or like chat with people about Star Trek. Oh, is that what you, so you start, Star Trek was your first uh, I would, memory. I would do, yeah, I would do like chat rooms about like, yeah. about like, you know, talking about Star Trek or I would like, um, you know, maybe play like Starcraft online. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And then, the, you know, I, the, we didn't get. The way that my parents were very against like cable television, you know, they they thought TV was little very, did they know it was very in bad that box. So I had to. So the reason we snuck cable TV into the house through the cable modem, which was def, which was an oh, easier right. sell. Yeah. Like, well, you know, we have to get this high speed internet. And my dad was a big he is a big tech nerd, so he yeah. was the one who was buying all the computers back in the day. So that was like easy. But then once you got this, the cable modem, then you could just have cable. So I only started watching like MTV and all that stuff, and when I was like eighteen. Oh my gosh! You missed a lot of road rules. I did, yeah, and I, I caught up. You caught up. Uh, yeah. you? <laughs> um, I can't let this go. You have a cocktail dedicated to pogs. I do. Yeah, pogs. Slammer. The, so, what are pogs for those who might not know? Pat, do you know what a pog is? Have you ever heard of a pog? I have heard of it. I don't remember ever using them. They were like a, a game where you like slam down pogs and you win pogs. It's like dice-ish or something. I never no, played pogs, but I know yeah. I know of pogs. What is it, John? Well, I I was never a big pogs kid myself. I was more of a Magic of the Gathering. Yeah, more kind of person. Detailed pogs were like a little simpler. Pog, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I want. I was. Yeah, I, I love the dorky shit, and pogs were a bit like a bit. Basic, let's just call it. Yeah, it was a little bit more like sports adjacent for my comfort. It was a little more like hand and eye coordination because you're like flipping the <laughs> stack of pogs. That's my yeah. memory of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it, it also felt a bit forced at the time. I remember it was like there was a lot of like trendy things like the snap bracelet and the magic cards and the, you know, the X Men cards and the, sort of these collectibles and Pokemon was kind of coming around. Yeah. And then everyone was like, oh, it's pogs. Pogs is the big thing. And it felt like it was something where the media was actually more interested in it happening than actually the people who were using it but it, but that's not to say that it's not a real thing it was it's been around for for decades it was like developed in these basically in like east asia no way i yeah. had no idea the history came from east asia yeah and so it sort of came eastward like through hawaii and so people so people who are like from hawaii and um, i actually was like um talking to someone um and and she was like uh you know lady shu yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, she was at my book party and she was like, do you have a Pogs cocktail? And I'm like, I actually do. Yeah. That's, <laughs> the best. that's so great. I mean, I think we all have memories of these objects like slap bracelets, as you mentioned, you, you pay homage to a lot of these objects and the Pogs stuck, stuck with me. I think it was like a, like a, like a year for, for me. Yeah. 
And so it was, and so POG stands for pineapple orange guava, and it was basically it was the cap of this juice, this POG juice, that was the thing you would use to play. And then you would have this like so they were kind of cardboardy. Wait, it starts with POG from Hawaii. Yeah, that's the name. Yeah, holy cow! I right. did not make that connection. Now you, have wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have these like bottle caps that are sort of these like, it's like a, yeah, cardboard coins. Then you have a heavier one. That's the slammer. Yeah, that you throw down, and that's the what how you get. God, they must have sold a lot of. So juice. it's kind of like jacks. Yeah, it's know? like jacks exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's where I remember the slamming and the flipping. But it's kind of a great way to sell a lot of juice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really brilliant. So the so the drink in the so the drink in the in the book is obviously based on pineapple, orange, and guava juice, and so that's that's how you get to. It that. was a natural fit. Yeah, that was I, an easy one. <laughs> I so agree that the '90s did smell like Aquadigio. <laughs> I mean, you're a me- you 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 sense is very important to you being in drinks. What, how do you describe the smell of Aqua Digio? Well, it's very kind of. Um, I think that the I, I actually was I had a really fascinating experience last week where I got to go visit a um, a perfume house, yeah. uh, nice. and they're you know they like develop perfumes for like Chanel. You know, they're it's like. You go there and you're like, hey, I want to do this thing. And so they had this, they, there's this one woman who was presenting basically this kind of like a history of, of fragrances. And, and the, she said that if you blind smelled her <laughs> on a fragrance, she could tell you when it came from because there were very distinct trends. In, <laughs> like the era. In fragrance, yeah. And one of the trends in the 90s was that the um, is that uh, fragrances started to take on a kind of like a food or culinary mm. kind of feeling. And so I, to me, Aqua Di Gio has this kind of citrusy um, note to it that is very like kind of uh, the, sort of like the hallmark of that fragrance. Yeah, like like Lagerfeld Photo had it as well, a similar era. Yeah. I feel citrus was important. So like 90s were the kind of the era of of – it started the era, which is we're now currently living in, of, of like uh, fragrances that were kind of referencing things you could eat. Yeah. And that weren't just like po- like roses or medicinal. Do uh, you have a drink tribute to Aquadigio? I or, do, or, yeah. Yeah, what's that one? It's called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, uh, so I have I have two cocktails that reference Nirvana, yeah. and one is refer- it's referencing the name, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, and the other one is called In Bloom, which is made in a can. But the yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit is actually my Aqua Gio. So I sort of am fusing uh, references just because Nirvana was so influential. Um, and so it's basically just like a kind of a – it's like a amaretto um, margarita. Oh, my So gosh. it has kind of this obviously like, you know, Italian, like Armani, kind of reference like to that and the citrus. And so that's sort of – that's the connection. Let's talk about structure. I love that you keep it in all caps, which is the the preferred branding of it. This was a a chain that was mostly in malls, but I'm sure they had catalog as well. I looked on Depop. I couldn't find too much vintage structure. I'm like kicking myself. I'd love to rock a structure polo or rugby. What fascinates you about structure? Well, structure was very like um, was very homoerotic. You know, it was very like yeah. Aber- Abercrombie, very sort of, like, shirtless. Yeah. You know, like guys and very athletic so that was really that that was what <laughs> that was what That's, yeah yeah there's nothing deeper than that. nothing deeper than it was but also it appealed to my sign of like it was sort of vaguely futuristic but also quite basic yeah but in a kind of sharp way almost like a like a down market like xenia sport a little bit 
Uh, and so I sort of was like an aesthetic, it appealed to me aesthetically um, in a few ways. Uh, and then I've actually tried to look up like what's going on with structure now. I got acquired by like Sears or something. Oh man. And there's like a couple of button down shirts on the website that you can get that are, oh, you can that still are buy structure them. branded, but there's absolutely nothing okay. unique. The rugby's used to have the the logo, a little tiny breast logo. Yeah, I can't remember what it was, but a lot of like horizontal stripes, like yeah. long sleeve t shirts, like cargo shorts, like that. Yeah, the, the shorts were okay. I, I think the, the rugby is what I was like, but you 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 pay reference to it. Is uh, we have so much great shit. The '90s is the best. <laughs> it really is the best. Okay, so I have a question about Capri Sun. So Capri Sun has the strawberry flavor, but then it's embedded in ice. And I always, as a kid, was like, "That's not strawberry. That's like strawberry and ice." What do you think about this this Capri Sun flavor to your expert palate? Oh well, you know it's like there's so much of, of flavor is is not actually what you're tasting, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I think it's like the uh, there's like that like um, suggestion of refreshingness that I think like I don't think people necessarily associate strawberries with being refreshing. Overly, Absolutely not. You know, they're nice and they're fresh, but they're not like. Ooh, I'm so thirsty. I want some strawberry. I want to pound like a a package, a packet of of strawberry juice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like you no, know, it's because it's kind of thick. Um, so I think this like having that having like the ice imagery to associate it with is like sort of primes you to to accept this as a refreshing beverage, which is you know that I think also very much like a lot of like what '90s kind of consumer like CPG, you know, consumer packaged goods were very visual. Yeah. You know, like it looked, they looked amazing. Like the, like the art on the, I mean, they still do now, but it's like the kind of like, there's that, uh, at least some, some lip service to authenticity that we're trying to do now in terms of our like products of being like real or whatever. But like sometimes like the package on the, on these, these foods were so. Like koala yummies, man. <laughs> like what a crazy packaging or Dunkaroos. What a crazy packaging. Dunkaroos. Yeah. Love both of them. I do have a Dunkaroos cocktail. I yeah. know you do. You pay tribute to so many products. Um, and then like, of course, like kiwi enters the, the fray with, with Snapple. So you, you like strawberry. Kiwi strawberry. Yeah. Kiwi strawberry is amazing. So iconic. I actually have a kiwi strawberry, uh, like sub recipe in the book called Cowabunga sauce. <laughs> so, what is it? That's so cool. So it's basically strawberry liqueur blended with kiwi. And oh, then, man. And then strained out. And it's something that's used over a few recipes in the book. Uh, and I wanted to name it something. And I just feel like, I mean, kiwi strawberry is like the 90s flavor. It is. You know, like that Snapple. We have a great uh, article on Taste of Up, a link to it. We did a 90s issue back in the day. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to have something where it was like kiwi strawberry as like a as like an accord of two flavors shows up in a couple places. So I, I had to name it something that was very, very 90s, even though I feel like the Simpsons were like more than the 90s, but it's never wrong. Well, it never went away. It's never wrong to place the Simpsons in the Yeah. 90s, well, so but the Bart Simpson Butterfinger kind yeah, of exactly. like moment and the and the shirts were yeah. so 90s. Yeah. Like those Simpson shirts. Yeah. And I haven't everyone... seen one of those in like uh, Dime Square yet. I feel like that's a that's <laughs> a, something that I would expect. Have you seen a Simpson shirt out there in the in No. The... No. Wow. I haven't. The most recent Simpsons thing I've seen I've seen is like is like someone who has like a meme account on Instagram, they superimpose drag race 
quotes <laughs> over Simpsons stills, and it's pretty. That pretty sounds funny. really yeah. yes. <laughs> All right, the in bloom cocktail. I want to actually circle back on that. It's a you build it in a beer can. Mm-hmm. It seems incredibly insane to me. I love it. What what's the hell? You're like basically <laughs> taking a swig of beer and then you're adding some shit to it. What is going on there? Basically, yeah. And uh, that drink was actually I don't know who div- I don't know I didn't invent the idea of building a. No, a, a, a cocktail in a can, and I have a Michelada in yeah. my first book that's based on that. And then the first time I ever did that was when uh, I was opening uh, Fuku, which is the fried chicken sandwich restaurant uh, as part of the Momofuku Group. And our first location on First Avenue had like a pretty legit bar, but we didn't really have a lot of time. You know, it was quick service. It was like basically like fast casual, like we wanted to be like a sweet green or something like that. So how did you make these sort of mildly legit cocktails but mm. without too much work and too much like uh, like mise en place in terms of like you can't have a mixing glass or you can you just have to be, do a quick and dirty, like almost like you're at a picnic. And so I did a michelada, a tecate michelada with like some sauce and stuff like that as part of the menu. Yeah. Um, I sold a few of those. We sold a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that was sort of like my first like successful attempt at building a cocktail in a can. And it's just, I feel, I feel like it's a pretty much of a no brainer because you have the vessel, you know, it's like if you're, for me, I'm always trying to like optimize, you know, how something is done and questioning yep. why you do anything. And, you know, so it's like, well, if you're opening a can of something, you have the thing you can mix yeah. in and the thing you can drink out yeah. of. So and it's just cold. combine it all. Exactly. And it's, it's yeah. cold. But like I, adulterating beer seems hard to like actually get it right, but maybe isn't that hard. We just don't think about it. Yeah, I guess it, it could be hard. Depends on the beer. Depends on what you're doing to it. Yeah, I think that the 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 drink in drink in a say by the Bellini um, is uh, has aquavit in it, which could be kind of polarizing yeah. for people. So um, that if you don't love the caraway, fennel, star anise uh, trifecta, then it's probably not the drink for you. But could you sub gin? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Um, but it also is 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 balanced out with some Saint Germain, so it has this kind of like which is the bloom. Yeah, uh-huh. in bloom, which is a I love that. Nirvana so Saint Germain Aqua V, and then like a light beer. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm feeling that. That makes sense. <laughs> Let's figure out an NA version of that. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking, how you, <laughs> and you could do elderflower easily, uh, and then yeah, elderflower. You could like build it. Why is where is where is the next? Where is the non-alcoholic Aqua V? It's, oh my god, time. I feel like the the back to that laser laser wolf that mother wolf uh, meal. I feel like the fake Negroni had some kind of crazy fire ish kind of effect mm. of an aquavit in it. It was like it, it had an alcohol burn, even though it was non alcoholic. Yeah, sometimes they do that with a capsaicin. Yeah, exactly. It can feel a little cheap sometimes, but sometimes it works. Oh my god, the NA cocktail world. You have so many thoughts. That's our next podcast. You're coming back in like yeah, a few months. Sure. And we'll dive into that. But we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll um, evaluate our prediction. I think so. So I want to talk about the last recipe in your cookbook because oftentimes it gets no love. Like no one wants to talk about the I last love that. I love that. I love I love how you're you're focused on that because to me it's like it's like the finale. I agree. And like you think about cookbooks as reading straight through. In some books, you know, it's like the the be- it's like those like recipes, sub recipes. Yeah, you know, that can happen. It peters out. It peters out. But I've written a, a one one of my books has been I like to end strong. And let's talk about your last recipe, Caribbean Blue. What's going on there? So uh, Caribbean Blue. I can't even say Caribbean Blue because I want to say it the way Enya says it, Caribbean Blue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, if you don't know who Enya is. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, you need to get you, you've you never, need to get up to date on who Enya is. Yeah. She is pretty awesome. Yeah. For, she was she used to be in the Irish folk band Clonad, and then she went solo. And her second album, I think it's her second album, is called Shepherd's Moons, which came out in yeah. like 1993 or four. And it just like it like it, the chokehold that that album had on my entire family was unmatched. You know, it's like my brother was very kind of my brother was the reason why I knew about Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and like he was this kind of rocker guy. My my mom listened only to classical music. She yeah. like never like she didn't touch pop music even like, like pro- classical like Brahms. Yeah, yeah. like and she was she couldn't like she thought that like even like oldies like 60s 70s 80s was too cacophonous. <laughs> the only pop music she ever got into was the XX. And so anyway, so wow. which is another podcast. I love that one. Yeah. I took her to an XX concert once. Oh, dang. it was pretty amazing. She's a big Jamie fan. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so it was the it was like the one album that we all could put on, and I loved I was I was also I loved Ace of Base and like En Vogue, so that was like yeah. where I was coming from. I had like the Janet Jackson like If I Was Your Girl single like fused into yeah. my little shitty cassette radio. So good. Um, and so it was this thing we all could agree on, and so I would put it on for like dinner because we always had to have like a little fancy you know dinner where we play light candles and like have music. Beautiful, it's setting the scene. And so yeah, it reminds nice. me this like it's this very ethereal synthy like she layers her the Enya layers her vocals over it over it oh. very kind of chorally, and so it's like sounds like there's a lot of her singing, and it's this sort of very innovative thing that we I think music now does tons of, but um, it was. Very edgy in a weird way, but also very kind of elevator music. It's and- so punchliney. You know, you think of it as like uh, you're looking at me like Matt. You are fucking dead. Like <laughs> you were gonna just rip off my head when I said that. Sorry, <laughs> I strike that for the record. <laughs> What's punchliney? <laughs> like I meant like it's a joke. Like Enya is like what you have at like Spago. It's like playing. In <laughs> I the- love Spago. <laughs> no, I love Spago too. Like shout out to Sherry Yard, great restaurant, <laughs> a legendary restaurant. I don't- but like you know Spago Rock, which is a whole genre of music um oh there's like a Sp- steve- there's spago rock Wait, music oh yeah amazing. jason diamond's written about it. he's been on the show and talked about it. like like steve winwood is oh, in there ooh, yeah like all that great stuff okay yeah. i now have a new identity oh you know th- go to spotify and and just put in spago rock and there's uh, several playlists no but sorry back to any uh, and your drink i, I love <laughs> the story about the history of this with your own it's a personal book and like really it's very John, personal. Yeah. i love I, have- I love it i love your book so i'm gonna, i'm buying it for i have a couple friends in mind i'm gonna buy it for them oh, because i mean that because it's a really cool book and you might not be super down with making drinks at home but whatever like read it for the cool stories about all these great 90s relics right it's like where's waldo you know you could just look at it and have enjoy looking at all of the cool pictures or you could try and find waldo it's the same thing <laughs> yeah as my book you could just look at all the cool pictures and all the fun illustrations. Um, What's in Caribbean blue? Yeah, so I, that's probably what you were asking originally, okay. rather than my entire life story. But uh, <laughs> I love it, John. You're, we're doing this. We're doing this again. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's basically like you know, Caribbean blue uh, paints a picture. You know what's a Caribbean cocktail and what's blue, and I've I'm I'm known quite well for uh for blue cocktails at this point. Yeah, and so I wanted to do something that was like a pretty simple kind of Caribbean coconut you know i i refer to this song as waltzy and nonsensical and uh, so is this drink uh and so it's basically just like coconut infused blue curacao with uh rum and pineapple it's only basically like a blue hawaiian which isn't caribbean obviously but mm-hmm. a lot of i feel like there's a lot of weird uh like misattribution from hawaii to the caribbean i know but it's like just simply because of resorts and islands <laughs> exactly that's all it is yeah it's, it's like club med Exactly. Like, whatever. Yes. <laughs> so it so they, they so it it applies and um 
and then you take you you know, you've, you basically infuse the uh, blue curacao with uh, dried coconut flakes. And if if you're yeah. if you're an avid infuser, you know that a dried botanical product is much easier to infuse into alcohol than the wet one because there's no water to displace. And so you, the dried coconut will pick up or will infuse itself into the alcohol very well. It sort of makes the blue curacao kind of milky and kind of a little chalky, but then it also dyes. The the coconut flakes uh, bright blue. So what you do is that once you're once you're done with the infusion, you take the coconut flakes and you you uh, dry them and then you use them to as the rim on the glass. Oh, as nice a gar- as a garnish. That's so, fun, fun, yeah. fun, fun way to use that that product. You know, just like pitching the infusion. Yeah, dope. Let me close by asking you um, if you could have a restaurant name a menu item after you, what would that menu item be? Yeah, I think I I, I love like. Um, like I love the I love like kind of like kids menus or I, I'm a, sort of like a like an ambivalent vegetarian so like yeah. I love like the the like peanut butter and jelly sandwich with p- potato chips in it and like totally. those kinds of those yeah, kinds well, of food. Comforting, like yeah. mozzarella sticks that's let's go with mozzarella mozzarella sticks, sticks great answer yeah John DeBerry thank you so much for returning to the Pace podcast thanks for having me always a pleasure. So, Eliza, we just came back from the Javits Center like 30 minutes ago. We did, and my mind and my stomach are both dazzled right now. Right, your mind and your stomach. Now, the Fancy Food Show uh, is an annual event. Um, It's actually twice. There's one in uh, the Bay Area in January, and in June at Javits, it usually arrives. What are your first thoughts? This is your first Fancy Food Show. I've I've been many times. Uh, You've never been, so what do you think? Well, it's very overwhelming. Um, There's multiple levels for people that haven't been, and there's a casino-like effect, especially Mm. when you're looking around at all of the people, like, shaving, I don't know, legs of pork or the the pasta. There just feels like there's stuff happening everywhere. But it was really cool to see all these different food folks and kind of, like, do a temperature check on potential trends in the space, things that we want to see more of. I had a good time. Absolutely. I I think fancy food is important in many ways, but first, it's a great way for us as writers to see the next generation of food, and we'll talk about food trends in a minute, what we saw there, but it's also a great way to meet and greet some of the young entrepreneurs or young in, in terms of their age of their business. Um, and we ran into a bunch over the course of the the three hours. We were like there for maybe under three hours. We we walked the floor. Um, roll call. Jing Gao from Fly by Jing got to got to talk to her about her new cookbook, which I just got in the office. It's, it's amazing. It's really a great cookbook. Can't wait. I'm really excited about that. I love the Zhang sauce, especially that Fly by Jing does. I think is like so fun to add to things. I agree. It's she's and she's just a great um, thinker and and huge huge um, presence. Uh, we saw New York Shuk. We met the founder of New York Shuk. I've never met her before. I can't remember her name, but Lee Tall. Lee Tall, yeah, Lee yeah. Tall. Amazing, and got to try some of her new products and she said that she'll be in Whole Foods National in a month. That's really exciting and they do cool things. They do harissa that's fresh and jarred and then also kind of the dried spice mixture. Um, Personally, I really like their preserved lemon paste. That's what I always cook with the preserved lemon paste. And I've also gotten their dried spices. Hawaj, uh, the uh, za'atar is great. Um, Many, you know, probably 15 spices they were, they were showing. So that was yeah. cool. Yeah, and their matbucha also, which yeah. is, has olives and mint in it. Yeah. I feel like if you're making 
like a, a pantry pasta or a soup, like even like more untraditional uses for that. It's just so good. It's great. We ran into Monsoor from Zuida, uh, that Houston-based Harissa company. Really fucking good. I love that that Harissa have ordered it a couple times. Yeah, I liked it. It was spicy and they had a very good sign indicator, which was that they were the they were like the favorite brand at HEB last year. Yeah. Which I'm not. I've never been to Texas, and I know yeah. that people love HEB. So yeah. when I saw that cosign, I knew that was yeah. going to be good. It was great, and and really, he kicks up the spice in the best way possible. Sweet guy. I love to see him in New York selling uh, Zuida. And also he was showing some Tetra packs. So some of those, those like soft packs that are like the pre-seasoned chickpeas with um, harissa sauce. He's about to launch those. It's really cool. Yeah, I think it's smart. I would say that that definitely seems to be a rising trend in the food space. And, you know, why not have more like delicious, easily accessible things? Yeah. Saw Emily Schilt from Pop-Up Grocer. Saw the crazy Carbone uh, pasta sauce booth and they kind of made it up to look like Carbone a little bit and they were wearing the same suits that you see at Carbone. Possibly they were um, Hugo Boss potentially. There were rumors. Yeah, rumors. We don't know what the, we didn't ask them exactly what they're wearing. But man, let's talk about some trends, some big picture trends we may have seen or some standout products. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, well, I think we were talking about how Chips in general yeah. seem to be a trend, and not just a potato chip, but chips that are made from ugly vegetables or from just chicken breasts, apparently. Yeah, that um, was weird. That was a weird one. A lot of mushroom chips are out there. I think that if you've read like the Whole Foods trend report over the past couple years, mushrooms have kind of always mm-hmm. been in the mix as a rising ingredient. And I think that definitely this year it seemed to be that a lot of people were noticing the success of mushroom jerky and things like that. Yep. That was cool. And, and the ancient crunch booth, um, the, they do the masa chips that I've picked up at public grocery before and enjoyed tremendously. Um, chips everywhere. I like to see that. So Yeah, we're pro-chip. Um, one thing that I saw, um, and this is no shocker, that dry pasta is pretty competitive. It is a competitive space. There is so much dry pasta. There's the brand Your Pasta that you mentioned yep. in the past on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it definitely seemed to be a hit of the fair because they were all cooking their pasta and feeding it to people. And it was lunchtime and people wanted to be eating. Yep. Dan Pashman was there uh, selling his own pasta, fellow podcaster. Now, I think dry pasta is tough because it's, um, you know, there's a lot of established brands and it's a very crowded space. The aisle is huge. Obviously, on the flip side, people love making pasta all the time at home. I thought that your pasta is really cool. I, I like the couple that runs it. They're based in New York and they're offering a couple SKUs, two different SKUs. And I like the branding a lot. And, um, yeah, remember that your pasta and also Rumo. We, we caught up with that guy, um, sixth generation um, pasta company based in Lazio. And it's, uh, you had bought the product, which is cool. Yeah, you know, they're about to be releasing nationwide, but they've been available in at least some grocery stores that I shop at yeah. here in New York, like Union Market. And I definitely, I think I just picked them up off the shelf because I liked the, it was like a mid-tier price point yeah. and you can see the pasta really clearly and it looks like it's very thick and plump and pleasing. 
And yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of them. And it was cool to get to see all the different products yeah. because, you know, maybe one or two make it to the grocery shelf here right now. Yep. And just to add, gluten-free is still very much uh, in, in, in vogue. Uh, I, I feel like there, every pasta company had a version of gluten-free. And of course, there were just the gluten-free only pasta companies. Yeah, which is really nice to see. You know, I definitely like to cook pasta for my friends and my gluten-free friends having more options I'm here for. Yeah. So one trend that I saw and we both experienced and tried was it was very interesting. So two very established cupcake companies that started in New York City were pivoting to cookie. One is Magnolia, famous on Sex in the City, Downtown Bakery. And the other is a brand I had not thought about in many years. It's called Crumbs. Do you remember Crumbs at all? Very like 2007, yeah. 2008. Low-rise jeans, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Very um, bloghouse music, you know, bloghouse, that genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, extremely bad fashion, hyphy fashion. Yeah, 2006 is when Crumbs was everywhere. I think the company went public, but don't quote me. The company was basically these oversized cupcakes. Every office party in New York City between the year 2002 and 2008 had a Crumbs platter arrive. It was like this big, buzzy brand. I don't really know what happened. Potentially, they might have gone out of business. Anyways, they're back. The guy who seemed like he might have been the owner was talking up to another guy. And I eavesdropped in the conversation. And the guy was like, you haven't been here in a long time. And the guy's like, I'm back. So I guess that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, I just went to their wikipedia to try to quickly find about this crumbs out. well okay they did they were founded in 2003 on the upper west side as a mom and pop they are a public company and ah. they reopened october 14th 2014 oh, okay at its broadway location after three months shut down and then closed all of its stores permanently in 2016 the world needed uh, oversized cupcakes i remember they had like an oreo cupcake that was pretty good i'm like yeah. deep in their wikipedia under the financial status section oh, right now i don't know how much more you want to know about it i mean maybe one of the chapters do you hit like chapter 11 chapter 12 yeah well i guess um hurricane sandy happened and no. they lost seven hundred thousand dollars like of property damage Man, in the city rough. and then there was declining sales already wikipedia says due to locally owned mom and pop cupcake shops uh-huh. as well as increased competition from the grocery store and then they kind of lost a lot of their stock and then from there it kind of was a a downward turn, but now they're back and they're selling cookies. Cookies of all things. And so both of these companies, they have a lot of brand equity. We know them. And now they're like not selling what we know them for, which is interesting. And so what do you think? We sampled Magnolia. Uh, it was like a, a, a like a banana cream something. So it's funny because the related article at the bottom of this page is Magnolia Bakery. Oh, yeah. And they are doing a banana pudding cookie, yeah, which right, right. to me, the banana pudding is one of the most iconic Magnolia Bakery offerings. And I like the premise a lot of doing a yeah. banana pudding cookie. I, I In general, I think like mashups of two popular desserts is a smart move. Yeah. And I think it's a smart marketing move for them. To me, the flavor is almost reminiscent of a banana nut muffin it wasn't kind of pushing far enough into the cookie sphere for me even though it is a cookie yeah i fully agree i like to see it though i mean you like to see these brands like be you know move away from their one established thing and and innovate a little bit i'm not a hater on that at all me either and magnolia if you're listening i think it would be really smart to make ice cream sandwiches with frozen (laughs) banana pudding in between the two cookies and i will take stock option for that yeah. if you're public. Definitely, definitely take some stock stocks for that. Um, some some Definitely take some equity. That, you deserve it. Uh, let's talk about like, date fix. I think we both were were 
interested in this in theory and then on the cab ride back we sampled it and what do you think yeah i think it's really cool this is a company that is kind of trying to get into the goo energy kind of like sports um fueling up on the go market but their product is just medjool dates blended with orange blossom water or maybe some other kind of flavored waters and then you just have a, a kind of date paste in a little tube which I thought was very tasty and tasted exactly like what that it would expect to taste like. And I could see a lot of situations hiking, running, airport. Where, or just like, like working at your desk and wanting a sweet snack. That's what I'm thinking too. Yeah. I think if I was at my desk, I would probably try to find an excuse to leave. Yeah, but, um, it's true. Yeah, you're like, I need to uh, work another six hours and I can't leave at all. So I need to have this energy goo. Yeah, my like... <laughs> semi-pureed dates. (laughs) No, but it was really, really, really nice um, texture-wise and flavor-wise and reminds me of those Cliff Bar goos you get free when you run a race. They, like, hand them out and everyone feels cool. Yeah. Throw them on the ground. Um, Felt like, you know, unlocking something for runners. I feel like runners oftentimes um, eat uh, on the run, like, dates or nuts. I've, I've heard of this as being, like, real true energy food. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you look at the way that dates are traditionally consumed, often they're part of breakfast or, you know, a very traditional way to, to break your fast during Ramadan is with a date. So I think that um, that's speaking to a lot of just cultural and not, and just general knowledge about dates being really good for you and yeah. having, yeah, sugar, but it's complex. It's from plants, you know? Yeah. Last product I think I have on the list is a chai box. You tried some chai. That looked pretty good. Yes. I was desperate for caffeine, but that is not why I liked chai box. (laughs) I thought it was a really beautiful blend of spices. They were doing it with almond milk, which I appreciate as somebody that's not super dairy heavy. They have a lot of different spice blends, but the one that I had is called All Chied Up, which is just kind of the most traditional combination. And also the whole family was there passing out samples, and I thought that was cute. It was a cute family. We actually, we stopped by the Morocco, right? The Morocco um, pavilion. So cool thing about Fancy Food Show is many governments and states will spend money um, on uh, a full section and they'll invite in, um, I imagine, entrepreneurs and members of their community to to present. And uh, we walked through the New York State Pavilion. We walked through um, Greece, uh, New Jersey. The state of New Jersey had a nice little Pennsylvania with the Amish. Yeah, Yeah. the Amish guys at Pennsylvania was true. Uh, But then we went through Morocco and we fancy, you know, happened upon a, a very kind woman who was selling a bunch of tin fish. Yeah, and it was like um, tomato, tuna with olives in it, kind of these nice different flavorings. The sardines were really good. Yep. I thought that was quite fun. I also want to give a shout out to all of the Italian men at Fancy Food wearing <laughs> their suits. I was just really taken with the seersucker and like pinstripes and like some kind of Italian plaid situation. Yeah. They were very sharp. No, really sharp dressers, and I'm sure many were having fun. I was I was talking to some exhibitors and giving restaurant recs. You know, you're in town for a few days. Where do you want to go? And I, I was, you know, telling people where to go. It was, it's always a fun time just talking to all these folks from around the world who have a real passion for selling food, making a little money, but oftentimes they're just passionate people who have a great product to sell, and I, I love it. The spirit is... It's festive, um, and it's it's not cynical, I think. It's actually pretty open-minded and open-hearted. Yeah, I mean, we got to eat a hunk of Parmesan just cracked <laughs> right off the wheel and dropped into our hands. So That woman was just so generous with the scoops. Yeah, I said, can I have just a little bit? And nah. that was just, that was me being wrong. Like, I should have known better than to ask for that. <laughs> she didn't know, yeah, she didn't know medium or light. She went totally heavy. Um, so that was cool. And and really, we met a couple of folks who we think we're going to have on the show. So we'll, we'll later on, we'll, we'll mention that we might have met them at the Fancy Food Show. But again, 
really fun time. Thanks for for hanging out the show. Yeah, anytime I can spike my sodium levels like that, it's a good time. (laughs) This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 